Uh, earlier this week, I received uh, an email from a local pastor, and he was uh, thinking out loud or writing an article about the uh, evolution of relationships, like how relationships begin and how they grow and develop over time. And it kind of got me thinking about the evolution of a relationship, like what happens when a relationship starts or uh, begins. And I started thinking, um, and these aren't clean categories, but I think a lot of times when uh, you first meet someone, there's kind of the meet and greet, right? You, you, you see someone at church, you see someone at the office, you see a, a neighbor you know, who lives down the street from you, and there's the meet and greet. You shake hands, you introduce yourself, you say, my name is James, your name is, and then you ask, you know, basic questions. What do you do for a living? Uh, you know, do you have any, any children? Is this where you're from? Everyone says no. You're like, oh, where are you from? And you just start this relationship, right? There's the meet and greet. And then after the, uh, the meet and greet, there's the hangout. Right? And we have different names for this, but we, we just we hang out with someone. We, hey, let, let's grab coffee together. Right? Let's, let's hang out. Let me get to know you a little bit. Or let's, let's have lunch. Or if you're really bold, it's like, come over to my home for, uh, for dinner or for supper, as they call it in the South. And I, I would love to get to know you a little bit more. And so uh, you go from the, from the meet and greet uh, to the hangout. And then at some point in the relationship, uh, you experience the hang-ups. Right? And the hang-ups happen uh, when you realize that this person that you just met isn't Jesus. Right? They have quirks. Right? There's things that, that they do that annoy you. There's things that they may do that you don't like. Right? There are times maybe even where they annoy you a little bit. Right? It all started so promising. There was the meet and greet, there was the hangout, but then there's the hang-ups. Right? They're not perfect. They have quirks, just like you do. And then oftentimes after the, the, the hangout and the hang-ups, there's the breakup. Right? There is this sense of someone has stepped on our toes enough to go, you know what, <laughs> my life seems healthier uh, when they are not around. You've probably experienced this before. And and as I read that article and I started thinking about the evolution of relationships, I started thinking to myself, well, how is it that we as a people of God can interact with others in a healthy way? Right? How can we follow the commands of Scripture in our interactions with one another? How can we avoid this? How can we avoid getting to the point in time in life when we just go, you know what, that's more trouble than it's worth. I'm out. And the coolest thing is uh, God's Word actually instructs us. This is one of the things that I love about the Word is that I'm reading this, this week in 1 John chapter 3, and I'm like, this addresses our relationships and our interactions with one another. Right? It gives us options. The options that it gives us, the majority of them, are, are not good options. Uh, but there is an option that it gives us that is actually a quite compelling and quite beautiful. And so this morning, I want us to dream together about what it might look like uh, if we interact with one another uh, the way that Scripture calls us to in 1 John chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, 1 John chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 11, and then uh, we're going to go through 18, verses 11 through 18. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
Uh, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Uh, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You may have noticed that John lays out four different ways that people interact with each other. Three of them are bad, one of them are good. The first option in our interactions with one another is murder. (laughs) You can just snuff them out. You can have someone forcibly removed from the planet. (laughs) Uh, It should go without saying, but I just want to say it anyway. Um, That's not a good option. If you're thinking that, if you've ever been so angry or mad to go, oh, I could just kill them. Uh, don't. <laughs> Not a good option. But, but John lays it out here, and he's going to describe to us why this is not a good option. The second option uh, is to hate. Uh, as uh, the young people say, uh, you can be a hater. But John's going to say that also is not a good option. It's not good to live life in such a way that you uh, carry this anger or bitterness or hatred toward one another. The third option seems more appealing, uh, maybe on the front end, but it actually is not. It's apathy. And apathy is just when we tune people out. We just kind of say, hey, your problems are your problems, and my problems are my problems, and you worry about you, and I'll worry about me. The fourth option that John gives in 1 John chapter 3 uh, is really the only true, good, uh, compelling option there is, and that is for us, for God's people, uh, to love one another, to love one another. So I want us to think together this morning about why those three options are bad options, why that fourth one is good, and then I want to kind of put some like meat on the bones. Like, what does it look like for us to love one another as a church family? Uh, so the first option that John uh, is going to suggest is not a good idea is to forcibly remove someone from planet Earth. Uh, he says in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 3, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. The story of Cain and Abel, if you grew up in the church, is recorded in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis uh, chapter 4. Cain and Abel is kind of the first picture that we have of sibling rivalry, uh, two gentlemen that apparently did not get along. If you read the story, uh, it clarifies or it gives us some understanding on why they did not get along. Cain was someone who was essentially a farmer. Uh, He tilled the soil. He uh, produced crops from uh, the ground. Abel was uh, a herder. He uh, took care of sheep and animals. And there was a point in time in life when uh, they gave a sacrifice to the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice uh, was seen as pleasing to God, and Cain's sacrifice uh, was not. Uh, And Cain sees this, he experiences it, and his heart is filled with jealousy. It says in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and, where they, uh, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Uh, when Scripture uses this, this term to, to kill, when Cain kills Abel, it is a term that uh, describes a, um, to, to butcher or to slaughter. In other words, it was a, a vicious murder. Right? It wasn't uh, this thing where an, where an accident took place. It wasn't you know, that he, Abel was slugged by Cain and he fell back and just happened to hit his head on a stone. It wasn't this unfortunate, tragic uh, thing that kind of blew out of proportion. It was Cain like, slaughtering his brother. It was, it was premeditated murder. He hated his brother. He hated his brother, uh, Scripture says, because Abel's sacrifice to God was pleasing to God and Cain's was not. We don't fully understand why, but um, many people believe it could be because uh, Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was uh, a sacrifice from the ground. Uh, the author of Hebrews sheds a little light for us in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Abel uh, presented his offering by faith. By faith, Abel gave an offering to God. And so perhaps it was the fact that uh, Abel's sacrifice was given to God by faith and in faith, and, and Cain's was not. Cain was perhaps checking a box or just doing something because it was what he perceived the right thing to do. But when Cain saw this, his jealousy, his anger uh, toward his brother grew in his heart. Right? He, was, he was so uh, angry and filled with hatred that God looked upon Abel and was like, man, I'm well pleased here. He accepted his sacrifice, and, and Cain saw that God did not accept his, and his anger burned against him to the point where he decided to take his life. Maybe that seems far-fetched to you and me. We, we sit here this morning and think to ourselves, well, I would never do, I mean, I would never take someone's life. <laughs> it's not in my character to do that. I would never be so angry or so mad to take matters into my own hands. But, but that has been happening for thousands of years. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right, so, so how can we respond when uh, we have someone in our life who is difficult or hard to deal with or uh, tough to be around? Uh, John says, uh, murder... <laughs> is off the table, right? Now, don't be like Cain. But, but then he takes it a, kind of a step further in some ways. He raises the bar. Uh, for those of us who think to ourselves, I would never do that, uh, he says, well, everyone who hates his brother, this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hatred is a form of murder, according to John, and by his logic, no murderer can experience uh, eternal life or has eternal life dwelling within him. Now, you read that, I read that, and I think to myself, come on, like, <laughs> I mean, of course there's categories, right? I mean, there's, there's murder over here, it's very bad, very, very, very bad, but 
But hate is less bad, right? I mean, I know I can't take someone out, but can I just so dislike someone that I never want to see them, I never want to talk to them, I don't want to converse with them, like I, I wish them ill, I don't want well for them? Can I, can I function in such a way where I'm like, I would never take anyone's life, but I just hate that person? Scripture doesn't give people of God that option. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches us that if we uh, hate someone, it means uh, we are just as guilty before a holy and righteous God as someone who murders someone. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew um, chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before, you, uh, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see what Jesus does? I mean, he, he says, in essence, uh, that hatred toward one another that makes you just as guilty before a holy and righteous God is anger. And then he says, if you go, if you go to the altar to give a gift and, and you remember that your brother has something against you, it's not you have something against your brother, it's your brother has something against me. Jesus says, I would rather have you just, just leave your gift at the altar and you go to that person and be reconciled uh, to him. And so scripture calls us to a high calling. He says, do not have hate towards your brother or sister. When we hate our brother or sister, it is like shaking our fist at God and saying, I hated uh, who you made. I hated who you uh, created. Maybe you hear that and you think to yourself, well, um, I am only going to dislike people who dislike me. Right? I'm going to only hate people who hate me. Right? I, I'm only going to treat people uh, badly if they treat me badly. Well, John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, uh, who does not love abides in death. In other words, John is writing to the church and saying to the church, Listen, uh, the, the world will hate you. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to win a popularity contest. Like the world is not going to throw you a parade. Right? If you claim that you love Jesus and follow Jesus and ascribe to the teachings of Jesus, that will not be warmly welcomed or accepted on the world's stage. A theologian, a German theologian by the name of Martin Niemöller, who stood out or stood up to uh, Hitler back in the 1930s, uh, wrote this uh, to the church. He said, The fellowship of Jesus has no promise that it will ever be in the majority. Fellowship of Jesus has no promise that it will ever be in the majority. We must indeed guard against thinking that there can ever be any kind of human security or assurance against the world's hatred. All truces and peace treaties are unreal, for the world must hate the Christian fellowship. And because of the fellowship, as long as it's a Christian fellowship, cannot hate, it must suffer at the hands of the world. 
The motto of the community of Jesus is we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. It is indeed a conquered world which seeks to terrify us. It is indeed a condemned and dying hatred which attacks us. I'm so struck by his words written 80 years ago, 90 years ago. It's such a good reminder for us, especially that first line, the fellowship of Jesus has no promise that it will ever be in the majority. And for for those of us in the room who are natural people pleasers, Uh, and harmonizers, and the kinds of people that just sort of want everyone to come together and and sing and hold hands and experience this beautiful uh, fellowship. Uh, It is a reminder that when the world hears the message of Jesus, it um, is not well received. The Christian uh, will not be in the majority. Instead, we will be hated, and yet when we are hated, we are called to extend love uh, to one another. Options one and two, murder and hatred, are off the table, but there's another offer, option, that John gives to the church that initially seems appealing, at least to me in some ways. It's uh, apathy. It is having a perspective that in essence says, I don't care about the needs in front of me. Uh, I'm going to worry about me and other people uh, can worry about them. He talks about it in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right, so there's this sense where John is saying, if you look at the world around you and you see needs before you and you have the ability, you have the means to do something about it. This isn't just talking about the uber rich helping the poor. This is talking to humanity. If you look around you and you notice needs and you close your eyes to your brother or to your sister, John says, how does God's love abide in you. In other words, this is not an option for the follower of Jesus. We cannot simply close our eyes to the world around us. Our brother's need is not simply their problem. It is our opportunity. It's not simply their problem. It's our opportunity. Our opportunity to come alongside and extend Christian love Toward one another. John goes as far to say, when we love one another, it is demonstration that we are the people of God, that God's love abides in us. John is so bold to say that if you do not love, God's love is not in you. John says you, you can't take a position in life that simply says, I don't like people. That's not an option for the Christian. We are called to love one another. 1 John uh, verse, uh, chapter, three, uh, chapter 2 verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is not teaching us that because we love someone else, we earn God's favor 
or we earn standing before God. It's teaching us that because we have standing before God, uh, we love one another. This is the fourth option. It's really the only option that we have as followers of Christ, and that is uh, to love one another. So my question to you is, what does that look like? What does that kind of compelling love look like for you uh, and for me? John tells us in verse 16, He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So three things I want to point out about uh, this love that God has extended to us and that we extend to others. The first thing that we should notice is that this is a costly Uh, love. It's a costly love. Author Warren Wearsby says, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of the spiritual life. Isn't that good? Self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. Jesus put it like this, no one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Biblical love is a costly love. It's a costly love. There are times when it costs us our calendar. uh, That loving people this way means that we take our, our sacred time, our time that is ours to do with what we want, and we offer it to someone else. We, we tell someone else, even though I had not planned on helping you move that, um, I will help you move that. Uh, Even though I didn't plan to be there and it doesn't really fit in my calendar, I'm going to be there. Uh, It it means that we're not so protective uh, with our time to the point where we are unwilling to come alongside uh, someone else who is in need. That's costly love. Sometimes that love doesn't just cost us our calendars. Sometimes that love costs us our uh, convenience, what's what's easy for us or what's best for us. Uh, This kind of costly love stretches us. It means we find ourselves in places, uh, in spaces maybe that are difficult to navigate through. Uh, This love is is a costly love. It costs us our calendars. It costs us our convenience. There are times when it costs us our cash our money, our resources, the things that we oftentimes operate in such a way where we think this is mine. But in Christian love says, no. No, you, you give. And you give generously. This kind of love, this love that Jesus demonstrated cost Jesus his life. He gave everything. And so as we interact with one another as a people of God, there are times when this love costs us our calendars and our convenience and our cash. It's not always easy, but this love is not only costly, it's also uh, tangible. It's, It's not empty words. Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This kind of love moves beyond simply verbally telling someone, hey, love you, mean it, thank you, thank you. 
You know, those are, those are good words to hear. It's, it's good to hear the words that I, I love you, I, I care about you, I'm for you. We should speak words of truth and life into people's hearts and lives. But this kind of godly love moves beyond just words, uh, and it moves into deeds. It's like a husband who comes home and tells his wife over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. And a wife who says, great, pick up your socks. Right? Don't, don't leave the mail there. Like, that's the table that we eat off of. Don't put your stuff on it. Right? And it's like, no, 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 I love you, I love you, I love you. I know. Pick up your socks. Put your mail away. Right? This, is, this is love that, that moves. It's not just wordy. It's coupled with action. Jesus loved with the most tangible love of anyone uh, ever to walk the planet. He just didn't simply go around pointing at people going, love you, love you, love you. He backed it up with his actions. You want to, to love with this kind of love, then we should be people who don't simply say it but do it. This, this love is costly, this love is tangible. And, and notice, uh, lastly, that this love is marked by truth. And I wrestle with this. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And then it doesn't stop there. Sometimes I wish it stopped there. But it says, love in deed and in truth. This kind of love, this kind of godly love, uh, is, is marked by deed and truth. That means speaking the truth. We say, as a church, we want to be a people who speak the truth in love. We want to say hard things, not for the sake of saying hard things, but because we want to see Christ formed in us and in others. And I'm, I'm afraid that oftentimes what we do is we distance ourselves from people in our lives who have the courage or are willing to speak truth into our hearts. And I'm saying this about myself um, more than I am about you. Uh, but I have a tendency to like uh, being around people who like me. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, but when people start to, to step on my toes a little bit and, and say hard things to me, Everything within me wants to pull back and go, um, I, I would much rather just have the parade that follows me around. And, and not people who are going, James, that, I, I've noticed this in you. And I just had a friend two, two weeks ago that sat down with me at breakfast and said, James, I, I feel like you're restless. And what I, what I wanted him to say was, like, great message yesterday. Or, that's a nice shirt. What, what, I, what I didn't want to hear was something that felt unwelcomed in the moment. But what I am, am learning is that this is biblical love. This, this is loving someone enough to go, oh, you got, you got, right? right? It's telling someone something that might be uncomfortable or, 
awkward knowing that you don't know how they're going to respond. Right? We, as a, as a people of God, need and are desperate for that kind of love. Do you have people in your life who are willing to tell you hard things? Like to, to really challenge you and say things to you that are, that are difficult to hear, not, not, to, not to crush you, not in anger towards you, but because they love you and they want what is best for you. I love how Tim Keller says it because he says everything better than I ever could. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Man, that is good. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. It's like, oh, you're the best. You're great. You're great. You're wonderful. That was awesome. But, but it's never sharpening. But, but truth without love, that's just verbal carpet bombing. Right? That, that's just you swinging the doors open and just unleashing verbal fury on people. He's saying, don't, don't do that. Love with truth. Right? Love someone enough to speak truth into their hearts and in their lives. Right? So there's this picture of, of costly love, of tangible love, and love marked by truth. And so what does that look like for, uh, for us as a church? Um, sometimes, there's just a handful of things that came to mind. Sometimes um, beginning to love someone well means having a conversation with someone uh, that you do not know. They come into church on Sunday morning and go, I don't know if I've met that person before. Uh, their face is not familiar to me. Or I know I've been seeing them for seven years, but um, I've never had a conversation with them, and I still don't remember their name. And so I'm going to love them and go introduce myself. That, that, that's a step. I, I think loving people well means uh, when we get together on the first Sunday of the month for lunch, like we're in... T- we, Starting to do that, and we want to be intentional about that because uh, we believe that relationships grow and are built over time and with intentionality. And so we want to get to know one another. And so it means uh, walking into a cafeteria and looking for someone that you don't know or that you don't know well and sitting down and eating a sandwich with someone. Right? It can mean uh, joining a group at Christ Point. It, it can op- mean operating in such a way where you know that other people are desperate for the same community that you're desperate for. And so you're going to show up faithfully to a women's group on Thursday mornings. You're going to show up faithfully on uh, a Wednesday morning for, for the guys. You're going to plug into a small group. You're going to go to the gathering a little early on Sunday morning at 9 because uh, you just want to get to know the people who call this place home. Now, loving people may look like helping with an electric bill or uh, making a mortgage uh, payment or helping with a car uh, repair. Sometimes loving uh, one another well is having an honest conversation with someone even when it is difficult. But this is the kind of love uh, that John, this is the kind of love that Jesus uh, calls us to uh, live out into practice as a church. Listen, God uh, in Christ loved you with this kind of love. He loved you uh, with this kind of love. My prayer is that we would love one another uh, with that same kind of love.
Would you pray and let's ask God to help us. Uh, God, thank you so much for uh, your word that is living and active, that speaks to us right where we are uh, in life. Uh, Even today, Lord, I pray that your word would uh, rest well in the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that it would uh, mold us and shape us and uh, soften us. Lord, I pray it would humble us. Uh, Lord, help us to love uh, one another with the kind of love that you've loved us with in Christ. Uh, Lord, that is a way that we demonstrate that, you're your, that we are your kids. And so we ask for your help. It's not always easy. Uh, Lord, we need your help in doing that, and so we ask for it uh, even now. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.